Let's pray. O Lord, You are great. Please show us more of Your greatness. Convict us of our sin. Glorify Your Son. Bring the sinner in. Strengthen Your church. Please, Father, empower me by Your Holy Spirit that I may serve Your people and magnify Your name. In Jesus' name, Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 and verse 18 through 20, but we're going to be focusing on verses 19 and 20 this morning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." Jesus described the day of judgment in terrifying detail. He he talked about these conversations that people will have with him. You are familiar with Matthew seven and twenty one through twenty three. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Jesus is prophesying, he's saying what's going to happen in the future. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, what? I never knew you. Just four words. But woe unto you if you hear those words on the day of judgment. Now, this passage and many like it are declaring the truth that there are people who know God and those who don't. In this room, some of you know God and some of you do not. And for those who die without knowing God, being known by God, there is a terrible wrath and vengeance. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9 Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, 
And notice who the vengeance is inflicted upon. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel says repent and believe in Jesus. And if you do not obey the gospel, then you do not know God. And if you do not know God, then the vengeance and wrath will be inflicted upon you. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Do you know God? Some people do, some people don't. And what the crowds are doing matters very little to the final question, do you know God? And I don't mean do you know information about God, do you know Him? That's language that Jesus used, the language that uh, Paul used in Second Thessalonians, is the language that is used for the marriage bed. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. In Genesis 4.17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Genesis 4.25, and Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Now those of you who are married and those of you who are aware know that this knowledge is not information. <laughs> this is not instruction. This is not looking at a set of um, instructions on how to do something. This knowledge is intimacy. This knowledge comes in the relationship. And in God's mind, the best way for Him to describe knowing his people and being known by them is to use the illustration of marital intimacy. Because in his mind, this is the deepest way to be known and to know. That's the language he used. So do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the Father? Do you know the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest thing. This is the most important thing in the mind of God. Jeremiah 9.23 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He says, this is the thing to be excited about. Not that you're wealthy, not that you're mighty, not that you're wise, not that you're successful. This is the most important thing, that you know me. When the disciples came back and said, we have the demons even being subject, he said, the thing that you want to be most excited about is that your name is written in heaven. In other words, that you know God and that he knows you in an intimate, saving way. This is important. This is vital. How can you become known? Luke 10, 20, 22, 10, 22 
Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Because you and I are born in sin, because you and I are born haters of God, we're unable to know God in this way. We're unable to come to God unless He chooses to reveal Himself to us by His Spirit. This is what Jesus was uh, explaining to Nicodemus in that amazing passage in John 3, where Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What does He say? The wind blows where it wishes. You can't control the wind. You can't take the wind and say, come over here. No, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The only way to know God is if His Spirit rushes upon you, opens your eyes, makes you alive, gives you life, You did not choose to be born the first time, and it is not by your will or your effort that you were born again. It is by the mercy and grace of God. Salvation is of the Lord. This is what Jesus explained to Peter when he asked him the question in Matthew 16, in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. How did he know this? When everyone is saying, well, Jesus is this and Jesus is that, how did Peter know the right answer? Was it because he spent all that time with him? Jesus answers, Blessed are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Everyone here who knows God, the reason you do is not because you're smarter than your brother or more righteous than your neighbor. The reason you know God is because the Spirit of God has revealed the Son of God to you in the intimate knowledge of saving faith. Knowing God. And how do you come to this knowledge? How does the Spirit of God do this? What does He work through? Ephesians 1.13, In Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The gospel was preached, and you heard it, or you read it, and you believed it. And when you believed, the Spirit of God worked through that gospel, through that message, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, woke you up, stirred you alive like the valley of dry bones. And that is why you know God. So, the Bible clearly teaches that Christians are the only people who know God in this intimate way. But the Bible teaches something else about knowing God. We've been going through the book of Job. We went through it. Um, I'm slowly making my way. And there's a lot of things that are taught in the book of Job, but one of the most important things is that God is holy. 
Not just that He is without sin, that He's pure, but that He is separate. He's different. He's outside, set apart from all creation. He does things that no one else can do. He invents things that no one else would dream to come up with. He controls and upholds everything from the stars to the insects. And when Job stood face to face with the awesome power of God, when he heard the infinite wisdom of God, when he was confronted with the perfect one, what did he say? Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And this, in Job 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And what's amazing about this is as Job comes face to face with God and he declares, okay, I thought I knew about you. I'd heard of you, but now I see and all I'm seeing is a fraction. And that's enough for me to despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's confronted with the reality that God is outside of understanding. His ways are beyond measure. His thoughts are beyond searching out. He's too big. He's too vast. His wisdom is too high. And Job, though he was a righteous and blameless man, when he began to question God and God started to question him, he was immediately awakened to the fact that God is in a very real sense unknowable. He said, things too wonderful for me, beyond comprehension. And isn't this what Scripture again and again tells us? Think of Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Isaiah 40, verse 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. What is, what, what, what is the, the, the totality of Scripture communicating to us? God is beyond comprehension. He cannot be fully known. He's inexhaustible. Job 9.10, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? He's uncontainable. 
Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less the house that I have built. He's infinite and full of glory, Exodus 15:11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? In one sense, you can know God intimately only through Christ. In another sense, you can't even begin to wrap your arms around God. Children, what is the biggest number in the world? He says one trillion. Well, if you play a game with children, right, or you play a game with your friends and say, okay, what's the biggest number? And you say one trillion, and then your friend says one trillion and one. (laughs) See, the thing about these numbers is they just keep growing. You can't you can't get your arms around it because it just continues to go. Well, well, in, a, in a sense, God is like that. We will spend eternity with him and we will not even begin to get our arms around the fullness of who he is. He is inexhaustible. He is uncontainable. You cannot put him inside of a box in one sense and in another sense, he tells us who he is. And so there are these two realities. You can know God intimately and you cannot know God completely. But our text this morning deals with knowing God in another way. Verse 19, for what can be known about God? There's an assumption Despite the fact that God cannot be known without supernatural assistance, divine revelation, even though many, many people will die without knowing God, and even though the Bible is clear that God is unknowable because he's infinite and eternal, there is a sense in which every single human being does know God. And everyone who claims that they don't are liars. And that's the title of this sermon. Atheists and Darwinists are liars. What does Paul say? Everyone knows the knowable God. If you're taking notes, the first reality, the first truth that we're confronted with is that everyone knows the knowable God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown to them. Paul is recognizing what I just sought to take us through. And what is that? That there's much about God that cannot be known. There's a lot about God that is impossible to comprehend by anyone, even Christians. The secret things belong to the Lord. But that doesn't mean that God cannot be known at all. Yes, he is beyond your thoughts, beyond your ways, but that doesn't mean that he's left us in the dark. Paul says what can be known about God. Did you know that something can be known about God by everyone? When I would play hide-and-seek with my children when they were really young, um, I know that they wouldn't be able to find me if I really hid. So I would hide in such a way that maybe an arm was sticking out or a foot. And what would that do? That would let them find me. And in a sense, the Lord has not um, kept himself 
hidden from us, but He has left certain aspects of Himself exposed, visible, clearly seen, so that we can know Him. He has revealed something about Himself. This is what Paul means by what can be known about God. There are knowable things about the unknowable God. What is true about these knowable things? It is plain to them. It's evident to them. It's obvious to them. Who is the them? Them is everyone. Them are all people throughout all time, through history. Everyone in this room, everyone that you know, everyone in this world, everybody from the smallest to the biggest, from the youngest to the oldest. This verse is saying what? Everyone sees what can be seen about God. Everyone knows what can be known about God. Everyone understands what could be understood. It's obvious, it's clear, it's evident. That means that there is no possible way for anyone to be confused about what they're looking at. There's no possible uh, way for you to think anything except what you're supposed to think by what you see. Have any of you ever looked in the mirror and thought it was someone else? No. There's something in us that when we walk by a window or a mirror, isn't there something that you just looks? You know it's you. You recognize yourself. You may mistake someone else for someone else, mistake an identity and all of that. You look like this person, but I said hi. But you don't do that with yourself. You see yourself, you know it's you. You recognize you. It's clear. It's evident. It's obvious. Even more clearly than that, what can be known about God is plain to you. But Paul goes further. This verse says, the things that can be known about God have been shown. Anyone here work on engines? Anyone work on cars? Okay. So, brother, if you put an engine before me, maybe not everyone else, but if you put an engine before me and said, look, I'm going to show you this engine. You're showing it to me, but that doesn't mean I understand, right? (laughs) Just because someone shows you something doesn't mean you understand what you're seeing. I mean, in fact, don't we miscommunicate? Don't we misinterpret? Don't we misunderstand each other? And we're using very simple language. Does that mean that, okay, everyone sees, but that doesn't mean that they understand what they're seeing? Doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. Is that what this is? Okay, God has shown what can be known about him, but do people walk away not knowing, not seeing, not understanding, not comprehending? Well, no. Everyone's going to get this. And how do I know that? How do I know with such confidence that every single person, without exception, gets it, sees it, understands it, because of who is responsible for showing this? 
What does the, our verse say? For what can be known about God is plain to them because who has shown it to them? God. God has shown it to them. Does God fail? Does God try? No, listen, do not think for a second that God is a failure. He fails at nothing. If he's showing you, guess what? You're going to see. If he's explaining it, guess what? You're going to understand. So you understand what this means. There is no such thing as an atheist. Or agnostic. An agnostic means someone who says they doubt the existence of God because of a lack of evidence. Atheists and agnostics are liars. People who say they don't believe in God are liars. Burton Russell, famous atheist, when asked what he would say if when he died, he came on the other side and actually stood before God. What would he say to God? You know what his answer was? God, why did you make the evidence of your existence so insufficient? Why didn't you give me more proof? Why did you hide yourself? I looked and I found nothing. I can tell you that that man is dead and that is not what he said as he stood before God. But you hear what he's saying, right? I would have believed, but you didn't give me any clear obvious, plain evidence about you. And that is the claim from many so-called atheists. I want to believe, but there just isn't any proof. But what does the scripture say? For what can be known about God is what? It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. That man was a liar. And everyone who says anything like this is lying as well because here are your only options. Either God is wrong Or the atheist is wrong. Either God is lying or the atheist is lying. Romans 3, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Who are we going to believe? God who says what can be known about him is plain because he's shown it? Or the unbeliever who says, I would believe, but I just have no proof and I really don't think that there is a God. What is the truth? They know God is real. They know he exists. But why do they deny him? Because they don't want to submit to him. And they're not shy about this. Christopher Hitchens, which was one of the most famous atheists to ever live, he said this, religion is a totalitarian belief. It is the wish to be a slave. It is the desire that there be an unalterable, unchallengeable, tyrannical authority who can convict you of thought crime while you are asleep, who can subject you to total surveillance around the clock every waking and sleeping minute of your life before you're born and even worse, after you're dead. A celestial North Korea who wants this to be true. He just put all his cards on the table. This has nothing to do with not being able to see or recognize or know that there is a God. This has everything to do with, I don't want him telling me what to do. 
I don't like the idea that he knows my thoughts and he's going to judge me for them. I don't like the idea that he's breathing down my neck. There's this judge of the universe. I don't want to be accountable. I don't want to be responsible. I want my elbow room. I want to do what I want to do. That's what this is about. Is that what keeps any of you from repenting and believing that you also, you just want to live your life the way you want to live it and you don't want anyone telling you what to do? You like having your own way. Ultimately, atheists just want to be their own God. And that's why verse 18 says what it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They know God exists. They know he's real. And we're going to see they know certain things about him. And it's not that they haven't seen. It's not that they don't understand. It's not that they don't recognize. It is that they suppress the truth because they want their sin. That's why the wrath of God is revealed Because when they claim there is no God, they're calling God a liar. When the Holy Spirit says what can be known about God is plain to them, the atheist says, no, it's not. When he says he has shown it to them, the atheist says, no, you haven't. Once again, brothers and sisters, who are you going to believe? The God who cannot lie or the sinful creature that comes from the womb speaking lies? Scripture says that God has shown it to them and God does not fail. John MacArthur recounts this amazing story of Helen Keller. You all know of Helen Keller? Helen Keller was deaf, means she can't hear. She was mute, she couldn't speak, and she was blind. She couldn't see. No capacity to communicate. And a woman named Anne Sullivan spent hours upon hours, days upon days, and months upon months to unlock communication, taught her to communicate. And so it gets to the point where Anne attempted to tell Helen Keller about God. And you know what Helen Keller's response was? I already know about him. I just don't know his name. Atheists are liars. God has shown everyone what can be known about him. So what does everyone know about God? What can be known? What specifically has God shown to each and every single person? Two things. Picture them as mighty pillars um, holding up this large cinder block with the words written on it. No excuse. The first is his eternal power. Verse 24, what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely, specifically, his eternal power and divine nature. These are the two things. These are the two things that everyone knows about God. Everyone It means that he's the Almighty One. He says eternally, meaning that he existed before the beginning began. It means that he's always been. 
eternal. He didn't come into being. He has always been. He's eternally powerful. This power that he has um, is not built upon the back and put on the shoulders of other people. This is an eternal power. It has been before the start and it is still. He has all power. He has infinite power. He has almighty power. Every single human being knows this about God. Even your most skeptical, intellectual, atheistic friend knows to the very core of their being that God is eternally powerful. The second pillar has to do with the very nature of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. What does that mean? Not only that he's eternally powerful, but also that he's not like you and me. His nature is divine. He's not like us. He's different. So they stand back and uh, say, okay, Two things about God. He's powerful. Excuse me. He's powerful. He's always existed. And he's not like human beings. He has a nature that is beyond anything that we see here. Where has God shown these things about himself? What is the irrefutable evidence for God? Where do you look? Where do you go? Next heading, everyone sees the invisible God in nature. The Darwinist, the evolutionist lies. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived where? When? Ever since the creation of the world... In the things that have been made. Creation displays two things, namely about God. He's eternally powerful and he has a divine nature. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You hear what he's saying? The heavens are speaking. The heavens are preaching. The heavens are proclaiming. What are they saying? The Lord is powerful. God is mighty. He's eternal. Every sunrise preaches the power of God. Wow, look at that. Look, look, look at that enormous glowing orb in the sky that gives us light and heat that everything depends on. Look at the stars in the sky. Look at the thunderstorm. Look at the, the, the bolt of lightning. Look at the rain. Look at the hail. Look at the snow. Look at the wind. When you behold the skies, the heavens, the truth is proclaimed. God did that. He's powerful. No man could do that. No machine could do that. No angel could do that. The only one that can do that is the one who made all things and he's powerful. Sir Isaac Newton, he heard the words of the heavens day to day pouring out speech. 
And he said this, Atheism is so senseless. When I look at the solar system, I see the earth at the right distance from the sun to receive the proper amounts of heat and light. This did not happen by chance. Isaiah 40, verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like them, says the Holy One. There's none like Him. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see. This is the the, the command of God. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number. He's saying, look at the stars. You want to know how I stand apart from everything else and everyone else? Look up. Look up. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. And how did he do this? By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Jeremiah 10, verse 10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth. How? By his power. Who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah 27, 5. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth. Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, not millions or billions or trillions, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Six literal days. Not six periods of billions and billions of years. He made everything in six days. And what does that proclaim to us all? Power. Power. We can't even build a house in a day. He created the universe Everything in it, all creatures, cells, atoms, winds, waves, clouds, stars, planets, angels, men, beasts, fish, everything, sand, blades of grass. He created all of that in six days. You must stand back and say, power, what power lies in his hand? How could he do this? This is amazing. This is captivating. You know, you could spend your entire life trying to make a single drop of milk out of nothing. Try it. You won't. We could put all of our minds together and say, all right, one drop of milk. Let's go. Nothing. He made everything in six days. And not because he needed six days, but because he wanted to lay out the seventh day as holy. What power, what might, what glory. Not only is He eternally powerful, but He is divine in nature. Meaning, He's different from us. His intelligence is different. 
You know, there was a time when they thought that the human cell, or not the, the human cell, the cell itself was just kind of like this little simple, little blob of thing. They don't think that anymore. One um, molecular biologist was asked, okay, if, if, if the cell and the old way of thinking was a, um, was a house, what is it now? He said a galaxy. The complexity of the cell inside the nucleus and you have all of these moving parts working together, the DNA, the codes and codes of information that lay out the eye color and the hair color and how tall and the color of skin and, and all of these things about you laid out in this tiny microscopic tiny thing with all of these codes and codes of information. They say, this is truly an amazing thing. It causes you, when you look through the microscope or when you look through the telescope and see the stars and see their beauty and the color and all of the courses and how they stay, it causes you to step back and say, intelligence, intelligence, what brilliance came up with this. And this isn't like the alarm clock. Right? People take the clock and they put an alarm on it. And they take the alarm clock and they, they say, okay, now we're going to put a TV on it. And they just build upon someone else's invention. No. God spoke ex nihilo. He spoke and there was nothing but Him. And He brought everything into being by speaking. But he's not just powerful and intelligent, but he's kind. Looking at creation declares the kindness of God. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For what does the Father do? He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And when Paul was standing before people who did not know God in the intimate sense, people who wanted to worship Him, he said this in Acts 14, verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness. In other words, what can be known about God was plain to them. What witness did God have? For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
the generosity of God, the kindness of God, that he pours out rain and lets the sun shine and brings forth crops and allows people to have family and laughter and music and culture and all of the festivities and even culinary beautiful food and color and imagination and memory and on and on it goes with all the things that God so lavishly pours upon this world. It communicates he is divine in nature. He's not like us. Speaking of food, if you eat food that is really, really good, I mean really, really good, there's certain things that you're supposed to do. There's a certain reaction you're supposed to have. You're supposed to enjoy the way it looks, right? The presentation and the smell and the taste. But after you eat and enjoy it, you're not done. There's something you're still supposed to do. What is that? Thank the chef. My compliments to the chef. Why? Because the meal didn't appear out of thin air. When we were at the prayer meeting, our sister created, made this wonderful soup and these little muffins and they were good. And as we were eating them, our mouth was full again and again. People were going to our sister and saying, thank you, sister. My children have a habit after we pray. Thank you, mommy, for the food. Why? Because this meal didn't just appear. Somebody labored. Somebody worked. Somebody thought. Somebody planned. Somebody designed it for your enjoyment. God made the world. And Hebrews 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The house is not supposed to have more honor than the builder of the house. The meal is not supposed to have more honor than the preparer of the meal. And you know what is sad? Men and women and children love the world. They love nature. They like to go hiking. They like to go swimming. They like to look at the stars. They like to go to the waterfall. They like to go to the volcanoes. They want to dive deep. They want to go high into space. They want to look through the microscope. They want to look in the human body. They're in awe and amazed by nature, by creation, but they give no respect or honor to the creator. That is the tragedy of it all. They refuse to bow before him. So you know what this means. Not only are atheist liars, but the Darwinist, the evolutionist, Charles Darwin himself was a liar. And everyone who teaches Darwinism is a liar too. Interestingly, unintentional by me, on Friday at, my, at the school, Um, A lot of teachers are out, so I had to sub for a teacher. And the assignment was to show a documentary all about, guess who? Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution. So, me being me, I'm not just about to press play. I stood before them and I said, how many of you know who Charles Darwin was? Many of them didn't. How many of you know what theory of evolution is? Many of them didn't. I said, well, let me explain it to you. And I did, and it was amazing. Several hands went up and said, I thought God made the world. What can be known about God is plain to them. 
Charles Darwin, 19th century naturalist, after dropping out of seminary, he went on a voyage. And on this voyage, they were going along these different islands, and he began to collect um, fossils and living things and dead things, and he wanted to understand it. And he went to the Galapagos Islands, and he saw animals that were different from anything that he had seen before, and he wanted to understand something because he saw what would be called variations. He saw a turtle that had a long neck and a, and, and a, and a kind of a saddle kind of shell, and he saw another, tur- not a turtle, a tortoise, that had a short neck and a round shell. And he said, why is there difference? He found these birds, finches, and he brought 13 of them back, and he thought they were different birds until he realized, wait a minute, these are all finches, but they have different beaks. Some beaks are for crushing nuts and things. Some are for going into little holes. He said, why the difference? Why am I seeing diversity? And he sought to explain this. How many of y'all own dogs, dog owners? Look at that, yep. Some of your dogs are tiny, little tiny dogs, chihuahuas and things, little teacup dogs. Some of your dogs are big, right? They'll knock you over. And he was looking at dog breeding. He said, okay, how did it get to these little dogs and these big dogs and different colors and uh, tail lengths and all this? And it's because somebody intentionally bred dogs together to make the kind of dog look the way or perform the way that they wanted it to. So he looked at that and said, oh, nature must do the same thing. And he called that natural selection. Nature chooses to grow an arm or a leg. The fish that was in the sea said, I want to walk on the land. So I will grow myself legs. And I need to be able to breathe on land, so I will grow the ability to have lungs that can breathe air. That's his theory. The fossil records don't agree. In fact, the the experts in this field are admitting that there is no evidence in the fossils. Because Darwin thought, okay, you know, when we look at the fossil record, I know in my time it is what it is, but in the future we're going to discover all of these transitions from dog to horse and from horse to bird and bird to dinosaur and all this stuff. And yet here is the statement from the people who work in this field who are committed Darwinists. David Raup from the University of Chicago, paleontologist, professor, He said, we are now about 120 years after Darwin and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We know we have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. The record of evolution is still surprisingly jerky. And ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. In other words, when you look at the fossils, you don't see Darwinism. You don't see descent with modification. You don't see billions and billions of years. You don't see millions and millions of years. You don't see transformers that turn from a cat to a dog or a dog to a bird or an ape to a man. What you find is one type, the dog kind, becoming different variations of the dog. Or the bird kind, different variations of the bird. 
exactly what the Bible tells us we should expect. We see an eternally powerful God with a divine nature making the world as it is. So what is this all about? Darwinism is ridiculous. To say that the world sprang into being is ridiculous. What is it really about? In the film Expelled, Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist alive, was having this conversation with Ben Stein. This is the conversation. How He's wanting to know, how did life begin? What is the origin of life? Dawkins, nobody knows how it got started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. And what was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. In other words, a little tiny molecule that said, I want to make myself multiply. Right, and how did that happen? I told you, we don't know. Yes, you do. Ben Stein, what do you think is the possibility that intelligent design might turn out to be the answer to some issues in genetics or in evolution? Dawkins, well, listen to this, it could come about in the following way. It could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved, probably by some kind of Darwinian means, probably to a very high level of technology, and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. Now, um, now that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility, and I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. He said aliens. How did life begin? Aliens. Aliens who probably evolved put the seeds of life onto this planet. That's ridiculous. He knows it's ridiculous. You know it's ridiculous. These lost children at my school knew it was ridiculous. Everybody knows it's ridiculous. Why? Because it has nothing to do with the lack of evidence. It has nothing to do with fossil records or complexity or evolution. It has everything to do with sin and rebellion and a suppression of the truth about what can be known about God. And that's where the verse concludes. Everyone is without excuse before God. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Catholic priest and false teacher Brennan Manning famously said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, isn't it true that Romans 2 says that the, 
Gentile blasphemes the name of God because of you? Absolutely. But Paul doesn't say the cause of atheism is hypocritical Christians. The reason why people deny God is because they suppress the truth. What this man is saying and what others like him have said is it's a blame game. You can point to someone else and say, I would believe in you, God, but look at how they live. I would believe in you, but there is no evidence. All of these are excuses. And the verse concludes with the statement that no one has what? An excuse. It's not that they don't know. God has shown it to them. They have the light of God's world all around them. His amazing power, His divine nature. No one is innocent. Every single soul is guilty before the Lord, and that's why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel. That is why it must be a justification, the righteousness of God by faith, because everyone is guilty. Everyone knows, and no one re- uh, responds to the light that they have. That is why we need mercy and grace from the Lord Jesus. They suppress the truth. They'd rather create the theory of evolution. Aliens. One guy said it could have come on the back of crystals. They'd rather believe anything else than that God made the world. Why? Because if there is a God, then they are accountable to Him. And if they're accountable to Him, then they have to change the way they live and they will answer to him on the day of judgment, and they don't want that. So let's erase God to erase conscience, to erase conviction, to erase judgment, to erase eternal life or eternal destruction. Jesus no longer becomes relevant. The Bible is no longer trustworthy, and I can do what I want to. But the problem is God will not be dismissed. And the evidence of his existence in all of creation is screaming Day by day, night by night, he is powerful and divine in nature. Finally, this is called general revelation, and general revelation is not enough to save anyone. You can look at the trees, you can look at the mountains, you can look at the whales, you can look at your own body and conclude God is powerful And he is divine in nature, and that is not enough to save you. Nobody will become a child of God by beholding nature alone. But Jesus said, everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me. And he expects us all to respond to the light of creation by drawing near. Acts 17 says that God has appointed the, uh, 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 he has allotted the appointed boundaries and dwellings of people. Why? So that they may feel their way towards him, though he's not far from each one of us. That is what creation is meant to do. It's meant to cause you and I to draw near, to, 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 
inquire, to search out, to respond to what we do know. Okay, there is a God. He's powerful. He's more powerful than I am. I don't want to be his enemy. He's divine in nature. He's different from me. There's something that must be expected of me. And we have two examples in the scripture of people who responded to this. I will speak of the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius. And uh, that's Acts eight twenty six. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. This was not a place where the word of God was abounding. This was not a place where Yahweh was worshipped. This was a place of deep darkness. The pagan rituals and sacrifices of the Ethiopians, it was a dark place. And yet here's this Ethiopian, this eunuch. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Jerusalem and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah and the spirit said to Philip go over and join this chariot so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked do you understand what you are reading and he said how can I unless someone guides me see he could look at nature and say I know that there's a God who's eternally powerful and divine in nature And that's enough to drive him to go to Jerusalem to worship. But when he opens up the scripture, he doesn't understand and he needs help. And brothers and sisters, this is where you and I come in. As I began with, the only way to know God intimately, more than just this general revelation, is through special revelation, through the preaching of the gospel, through the explanation of his word, and declaring Jesus Christ. This is what Philip did for him. He invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, He told him the good news about Jesus. See, Jesus is the only hope for those who suppress the truth. Those who call themselves atheists, those who subscribe to Darwinism and evolution. That includes theistic evolution, denying the power of God and trying to put God into this wicked, blasphemous theory. There's only one hope. And that is Jesus Christ himself. And on the cross, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. Jesus was treated like he denied God's existence. He was treated like he believed that people came from apes in a big bang. He suffered the wrath of God as though he 
champion these things. We know that because there are people today, such were some of you, who believed these things, who taught these things, who loved these things. And now they are children of the living God. So if you have denied the Lord, either by calling yourself an atheist, playing around with those ideas, or just living as though God does not exist, it's all the same. And the one hope and the one place of safety is run to Jesus Christ. He is merciful. He is kind. He is patient. And He's powerful enough to take your sin away. And His nature is divine enough to take the wrath of God in your place so that you can be born again, made alive, and know God intimately as you were created to know Him. Father, thank You for... Before there was a Charles Darwin, before there were these people walking around calling themselves atheists, You had already provided a response to it. Thank You, Lord, that You make Yourself known to us. We don't deserve to know You in any way. Father, forgive us for the many excuses that we have made and thank You that You put Your Son in our place that He would suffer for excuse makers. In Jesus' name, Amen.